Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. Beyond the Mask is also sponsored by crnaeducation.com. CRNAs, you can get the CE credits you need by just going to crnaeducation.com. They have over 100 AANA prior approved credits, all four core CPC modules, and even over 40 pharmacology credits. No subscriptions, it's all online and mobile friendly. Just go to crnaeducation.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out our CE credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs and advanced practice nurses with certified financial planner Jeremy Stanley and CRNA Sharon Pierce. Jeremy Stanley has worked with CRNAs for more than 23 years, and Sharon Pierce is a former president of the AANA and the NCANA. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA and advanced practice nurse industries. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Good morning, Sharon. Have you had your Seattle coffee this morning? I have, and I needed it after the foundation event last night. You were moving a little slow this morning. I noticed that. Do you, you want to survive this morning? <laughs> <laughs> but it was a fun event. Actually, we auctioned off a podcast. We did. Last yeah, night. That was pretty fun. Well, yeah. Why don't you tell how much it went for? $3,100. To the foundation. Experience to the foundation. That was great. Yeah. yeah. We were very happy about that. I thought it was three, but was it 31? three? I, th- I thought it went 31. Maybe it's somewhere in the neighborhood. Oh, well, but if, if you, you was, were wrong, you can add the other hundred to the foundation. What was important about that is that we went for the same or a little bit above what the bottle of Pappy bourbon went for. Was that so Pappy? That was Pappy. I did not know yeah. that was Pappy. How yeah. did they get it? Uh, I think Mike got it. Mike Ames. Oh, yeah. Wow. So I've yeah. heard that stuff is awesome. Yeah. I'm not a bourbon I I'm not a, I don't drink it every night, but, you know, I can't afford to drink it every night. <laughs> <laughs> not at $3,000 a bottle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got wonderful guests with us this morning, and they've been with us before, and we're lucky to have them again. Randy Moore, welcome. Hey there. there. Good to be here. Good to be there. And Adam Spiegel, welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you both are here, and we're going to be talking about some of my funnest topics, Sharon. Yes, I know. I'm going to have to take a water hose to you three. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't you both, uh, for our listeners, just give a little bit about your background. Adam, we'll start with you, because... Everybody You're the boss. Today, You're right? the boss. So, <laughs> so uh, I'm Adam Spiegel. Um, I'm uh, currently the CEO of North Star Anesthesia. Been the CEO for about five years, and uh, prior to that, spent about 20 years in uh, working for a company called the Advisory Board, which is healthcare research and consulting. Um, we were acquired by Optum, and then uh, got the opportunity to work closer to the patients when I was there um, with Optum Care, and uh, got the opportunity to come over to North Star in 2018. So I've uh, been a lot deeper in anesthesia ever since. Great. Yes. And Randy, I know most people probably know you, but go ahead and give us a brief bio on you. Sure. Uh, Randy Moore, nurse anesthetist. I've been in the profession, uh, graduated 2005, and then shortly after that moved into leadership in a couple different areas. One is in hospital leadership, and then, of course, I got very active in the state and national association 
at about the same time. So was involved in uh, growing a perioperative service line in central Illinois, starting a pain click, kind of getting out of maybe the, the usual trajectory of CRNA leadership, which was really um, helpful and transformational for me personally. And then uh, I joined the board of directors of the AANA, served three years then uh, there, and then uh, was selected to be the CEO of the organization. And I did a four-year tour of duty. I, I did four years. <laughs> kind of was a tour of duty. <laughs> four years under my belt and had, uh, it was a, a amazing experience and a, a real privilege and honor. And then it was time for me to move on. And I wanted to pursue some other professional goals and happened to have, started to have conversations with Mr. Spiegel here to my left. And uh, the stars aligned after several conversations and I'm at North Star. I'm almost... She's just finishing up my second year wow. as chief anesthetist officer, and I'm accountable for clinical operations across the entire CRNA anesthetist workforce, and work very closely with my physician counterpart on clinical strategy and, and, and building out the workforce and creating great culture and partnering with our operations leadership uh, in, in running a, a, a organization of pretty significant size that's growing at a pretty, pretty, pretty good clip. Well, you, you knew a lot about culture after being with the AANA. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot of culture. There's a lot of culture yes. and subculture. <laughs> yes, for sure, for sure. Well, today we're going to be talking about the future of anesthesiology. And, you know, to me, that's just so interesting. I know Randy and I used to have conversations about this as sidebars, and you guys have been here with us before and talked about it. But, you know, I think it's something that all of our listeners should be concerned about, for sure. Um, especially new grads and so forth. And, you know, I, I make my own hypothesis about this industry from my side of the table, um, kind of watching what, what goes on from the business side of it um, and obviously not knowing a lot about the clinical side. But so today we're going to kind of hopefully mesh those two together because all three of you know much more than me about the clinical side and hopefully I can talk a little bit to the business side. So why don't we start off and just kind of talk about real high level, you know, what's happening in the anesthesia business sector right now? Sure. Um, I can jump in here. All right. Um, you know, it's a it's a tough, tough time to uh, run an anesthesia business, and it's a great time to be a CRNA. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, so, you know, you have this huge supply-demand imbalance, and, you know, a lot of that has really been driven by uh, the movement from hospitals to ASCs of surgeries. And what that's done is because it's put a lot of pressure on hospitals to uh, increase revenue, they have been uh, paying little to no attention to their utilization. Um, so they're increasing capacity um, across the board. And as a result, they're asking for more rooms to be covered, which means you need more CRNAs and anesthesiologists. You then look at ASCs, and they actually are getting more volume. So they're trying to run late. They're starting to run on weekends. Um, so it's not the seven to three job anymore. Um, right. And it's starting to look more and more like a hospital, uh, which means they need additional staff. They need more anesthesiologists. They're the anesthesiologist heavy ones. People are saying, gosh, the money doesn't work anymore. So I'm going to need CRNAs. So again, it's driving CRNA demand. Um, at the same time that, you know, Randy can go deeper here, but we've had, um, you know, relatively through COVID flat uh, CRNA numbers in the country. Now it's starting to tick up. Um, but I think you've had this challenge with demand. Residency programs uh, for anesthesiologists are um, starting to expand as well. But again, you know, you sort of had anesthesiologists, as many leaving the practice as coming in. Yeah. So when you have a lot of demand and not a lot of supply, it uh, starts to impacting price. And that's where 
uh, wages have gone up um, considerably across the board. The problem for an anesthesia company is you kind of want your revenue to go up similarly. Yes. And uh, the No Surprises Act has been really challenging. And I think if you look at a lot of what's been happening in the news to sort of large anesthesia practice management companies, what's happened is payers have started to pay significantly lower. And not just, you know, the 5% that Medicare is paying us less, right. um, but you're starting to see 20 30 40% uh, less uh, payment per unit from commercial payers than you did uh, in the 2018-2019 timeframe. So when revenue goes down and costs go up, it's really hard to operate a business. So what we do is you then go to the hospital or the ASC and say, hey, I need higher stipends to pay for this. Well, hospitals have had probably the worst two years from a financial perspective uh, that they've had since the 2008 uh, time period. So lost a lot of money last year. Operating margins are basically flat this year and uh, they are struggling and I think feeling a lot of financial pressure and one of the highest line items for hospitals in terms of their expense line is anesthesia stipend. So there's a lot of tension between the anesthesia companies and the hospitals around, hey, my costs are going up as an anesthesia company, my revenues are going down, I need, if you want anesthesia coverage, you got to pay me more money. And the hospitals are like, well, why would I pay you more money for the same coverage that I had before? Right. It's a tough conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and what percentage on average of hospital revenue comes from surgical procedures? I've heard this stat before, but... So it's from a profit perspective, hospitals get about 80% of their profit from surgery, okay. but it's only 20 to 30% of the revenue. So okay. it's sort of their, that's where they make their money. We care more about profit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly <laughs> the hospitals. Do, yeah. Randy, anything to add? Well, that's where I think maybe it's helpful to double click on the fact that there is this weird disconnect where in a world where the reimbursement's going down, if we were in a kind of a rational system, and I'm, I'm not in a way proposing this, but I'm saying you would see CRNA and anesthesiologist wages going down. Well, that's the opposite of that is happening. Right. And it's because the operating room is the economic engine of the hospital. So hospital CEOs are understand that. They understand that essentially the reimbursement for anesthesia services is, is upside down, fundamentally flawed, has been and will be for probably forever. And there, that's where the subsidy comes in uh, to cover the kind of that delta between what we are generating in revenue and what the clinicians are commanding relative to salary. So that's playing itself out in a big way. It's not just anesthesia, obviously. So hospital right. CEOs are really struggling with this, you know, anywhere from housekeepers to OR techs. Uh, you know, the you know, wage inflation is, I think, probably number one or number two biggest problem that hospitals are struggling with. And we're navigating through that, too. But the challenge here as a hospital CEO is that at the end of the day, you know, almost all of that gets passed on to them, right. Right. Even, even through anesthesia. So that's playing itself out. You know, Adam can speak to, geez, I mean, there's been a lot of churn in anesthesia contracts uh, where hospitals are like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. We're paying, you know, 30 to, you know, 30, 50, 70% more year over year. What's the quality of that? And we're, that's why we're seeing a lot of inbound interest uh, from other hospitals, health systems and ASCs who, um, are now kind of having some sticker shock. Interestingly, you know, we've had this discussion many times before about the anesthesia subsidies. Are either of you aware of the study that came out of North Carolina Treasurer's Office about CEO pay? 
over the last 10 years. Hospital CEO pay has dramatically increased by over 400 and some percent, whereas nurses' pay has only increased by 1.4% a year over the last 10 years. And he actually quantified it that you could what, have 750-some nurses, money for 750-some nurses for an institution instead of the CEO pay dramatically increasing the way it is. So to me, they keep talking about the anesthesia subsidy, but yet we're not addressing the elephant in the room. And there's been no study that said your care quality goes up with increased CEO pay, but the more nurses you have and nurse anesthetists, the quality of care does go up. So, Yeah, and I think it was pretty much on par with physician pay as well. Mm-hmm. I think you quoted that in there. It well. was. So it was a really pay. interesting study. So. Dale Falwell, you should look it up and check it out. We, we spoke to him at length about this. And, uh, oh, really, yeah. He, he's really taking it to the hospital CEOs in North Carolina right now, So, which is interesting because he's a Republican. Typically, they wouldn't do that, but, uh, but he definitely has. So. It sounds like I should go into hospital administration. This week. There you go. <laughs> there yeah. You go. I mean, if CEO pay hadn't picked up at North Star, you know, you got another opportunity <laughs> yeah, here, Adam. <laughs> I don't think I've seen a 400% increase. So. <laughs> Definitely a good idea. Um, well, you know, the last time we connected, you know, we talked about the CRNA shortage, and, you know, we're still seeing that. It's still playing itself out. Um, you know, you take a look at the average age of a CRNA and, you know, the amount they are retiring right now comparison to the amount of new grads coming out. And there still seems to be, even as you project out, there's there's a problem there. there. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, I think there's two factors. I think one is that there are a number, and Randy can talk more to this, um, just on the supply side, I think it is going to continue to be a challenge over the next couple of years. But I think if you look at, I mean, when we were here last year, the number of new program uh, leaders that we were meeting with was incredible. Um, yeah lots of new programs that are getting started. I think people are being smarter and smarter about existing programs, figuring out where do we see sort of CRNA deserts, mm-hmm. where there isn't a school, there isn't a place, and we're looking at partnerships where if we have facilities in those areas, it's getting SRNAs from those programs to actually do clinical work at facilities where there isn't a CRNA program as a way to increase the number of CRNAs that they can have in one program and sort of do clinical work in other areas in these sort of deserts. So. I think we're seeing that they people are really attacking the supply side. There's also the demand side, and I think that's a big thing where we're starting to see, at least in our world, a little bit more rationality from hospitals, where they're saying, hey, I can't afford to just do whatever the surgeon wants. If they're placing on elective cases at 5 o'clock uh, in you know, the, the evening, um, the day of, I, I can't, it's not just anesthesia. It's to Randy's point. Mm-hmm. It's PACU nurse costs. It's right. agencies uh, for techs in the OR. It's just too expensive to do that. Right. And they're starting to talk to us again about sort of OR utilization, throughput, how do we become more efficient? And when that happens, we're seeing hospitals start to say, instead of paying more subsidy, I'm willing to go down points of service. Right. And when that happens, you don't need as many anesthesia providers. So you start to shrink the demand. I think that's going to have a much bigger impact um, on this than uh, the supply side. Yeah, and many of those conversations where there is, and this is a very different tone and tenor maybe than two or three years ago, where the idea of, of, of decreasing capacity, lowering points of service was, you know, that, that, that was never going to Not be a part of the conversation. Yeah. CEOs would you know, have a knee-jerk reaction to that. Today, what is um, really 
pushing them towards more rational decision making is we show up and say our costs have gone up 30 40 percent that means your subsidy is going to have to go up and there has been you know and Adam says as well, I'm going to steal this. So uh, where there has been, you know, during COVID with all the CARES Act stimulus money, hospital CEOs were looking really good because the margins were fat, right? right. So, and, um, and they put a lot of that money into expansion, expanding points of service and, and all of that. Now, you know, CARES Act money has dried up. Yeah. Uh, margins are razor thin. And many of those CEOs are no longer CEOs, right? And so, or they, you know, they move them around and someone else comes in and they come in with, you know, the dictate from the board of directors is like, you need to cut costs. So now those conversations, the, the, the environment has ripened to have more kind of rational conversations in a way that just was not going to happen two years ago. Are there, are all of our CEO partners rational? Uh, no, <laughs> we could tell you some crazy stories for sure, but we're seeing more and more of those conversations uh, occur in a way that is mutually beneficial. Hey, CRNAs, it's time to simplify your continuing education. Welcome to CRNAeducation.com, your trusted provider for CPC core modules and a plethora of Class A CE credits. You can explore 43 detailed articles covering various anesthesia topics, all from your favorite device, anytime, anywhere. And with over 40 pharmacology CE credits, meet your state board requirements effortlessly. Whether you need a few credits or everything to recertify, we have what you need. Just complete your credits online without any subscriptions or recurring charges. You can trust in our 100% CRNA-owned platform, established in 2011, ensuring you receive the best in customer service and educational content. Ready to learn? Go to crnaeducation.com making continuing education easy and accessible. And don't forget that support is always a quick email or a text or phone call away. To sign up and learn more, just go to crnaeducation.com. We talked a little bit about this last time as well, and that is you know, private equity. And uh, you know, we can kind of explain that a little bit um, for our listeners as well. But you, know, you hear about private equity in the news, private equity in anesthesia-related businesses, Let's talk about that a little bit, and, and why is there such a focus on that right now? There seems to be a, a lot of whirlwind around that, Adam. Yeah, and it's, it's a funny thing, because there are these two huge headlines that I'd say have been the biggest thing that certainly I get forwarded articles all the time, which is the one hand, you know, private equity is driving up prices, and these people are awful. Yeah. Poor United Healthcare. You know, it's really <laughs> struggling because these mm. mean anesthesia companies oh, are yeah. raising prices. Yeah. Um, and then on the other hand, Envision's bankrupt, right? Which is the biggest private equity-owned uh, staffing company in the country. So, yeah. if private equity is making all this money, they're probably not going bankrupt, <laughs> right. Uh, right? And the reality is, what it's really about is whether it's private equity or independent practices. For years, uh, and this is not just an anesthesia; this is everywhere. You know, these big payers have a ton of leverage markets, and if you're an individual small anesthesia group or you're an orthopedic surgeon by yourself if you're not in network they're basically going to say hey we're going to pay you not you know if we're not going to pay you much out of network and you're not going to see any of our patients so specialties wanted to get together and say hey look if i have enough market share that they can't afford to be without me that gives me an opportunity to push them in network and get a reasonable price and that's basically what private equity has done is it's facilitated a lot of these groups to get together and negotiate better pricing. 
Um, So yes, pricing goes up when private equity comes in because probably those people deserve to get paid more. Mm -hmm. Um, And it evens out that relationship. Now the problem with the No Surprises Act is it basically took all that leverage away. So for a lot of these private equity backed firms, the whole value that they brought to the equation was I can get you a better price and that's gone. And I think for me, the story is a little bit backwards, which is the whole private equity driving up price in anesthesia was a great story three or four years ago. They can't do it anymore. And the real story is, well, now what happens? Because all these companies were really built around getting sort of the top practices in a city together to negotiate better price. When the reality is what all those companies now have to pivot to is actually doing a really good job of managing anesthesia. And that was, that that's wasn't really, a pri- that's not their yeah. thing. And that's not their, yeah. pri- that's not been their priority. So right. for me, it's a little bit of the interesting story in anesthesia is what happens yeah. because all of these companies are going to have to pivot from, I'm all about negotiating better price with managed care payers to I actually have to run anesthesia practices really effectively. I got to push on utilization. I got to make sure that I'm creating great culture on the ground and being attractive to CRNAs and anesthesiologists, and that's a that's a pretty tough pivot it's to a make. Tough game, yeah. I mean, you know, when I think about private equity, you know, private equity never gets it right 100 percent of the time, you know, which is why they diversify their interests and so forth. And you know, what happened at Envision, you know, it could happen at other anesthesia providers out there as well. And the interesting part is going to be how that unfolds. You know, does that mean more opportunities for companies such as yours? Does that mean more opportunities for clinicians out there to go in and negotiate a little on their own? Um, And and I think that's going to be the interesting point of this is where does this all go? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, when you start to look at this, I do think it's going to create a lot of this sort of market for groups that really focus on how do I manage a anesthesia practice really well? Because it, what's happening is it's much more complex than it was even four or five years ago because of the No Surprises Act and other things that you've got to have a fantastic revenue cycle and you've got to show that I can do this better than a hospital themselves. Mm-hmm. You've got to create a culture and a recruiting engine where I can recruit better than the hospital themselves. Because in a lot of ways, what you're trying to justify is why would a hospital contract with us versus a hospital just hires all the anesthesiologists and CRAs themselves? That's really the competition now is versus insourcing. And I think that's where you've got to prove that you can manage that practice better than a hospital. Now, the great news is hospitals are terrible at managing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kind of like the government. Right, exactly. (laughs) So the competition isn't that strong um, right? from an insourcing perspective. But, um, you know, you definitely have to show that you're actually adding value in those areas where it used to be a lot easier because, hey, if I can get better pricing, then I'm going to be cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. Hospitals are jack of all trades and master of none, really. I mean, you got to put your thumb here, your finger here to, to plug all these holes. Randy, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think there's... You know, on the hot, so there is definitely when you know you've seen the stipends, uh, stipend needs go up, and in some cases go up significantly. There, there's understandably a question: it's like, well, if you're a hospital, why would you not insource the program? Why would you contract with a third-party vendor? And I think it's a very fair question. If I was a hospital CEO, first thing I would be asking is like, well, what? Wait, why? Why can't we do this? And and some of them can, some of them can do it, but it requires a level of resources and knowledge and skills that is pretty atypical <laughs> yeah. in the average hospital or health system. And as we, you know, and, and, but it doesn't mean they won't try. And, right. and, and some of them are trying and some of them are experiencing significant pain as they navigate through that process. 
But, you know, it's not necessarily a bad decision to insource your program. As long as you go into it eyes wide open and understand that you're going to be leaving significant money on the table because there's no way you can do it as well as a North Star. Right. Uh, but if control is your thing, you want control, uh, you want you know, 100% control of the anesthesia providers and you want to kick the doors open and keep the ORs open as long as you want and, and you don't want to have to negotiate you know, with a third-party vendor, then go for it. But you're not going to do it more cost-effectively than a professional service firm like Northstar. So that's right. the thing that it's playing itself out. The other thing I'd like, if I can ask a question. Sure, absolutely. Is the other thing that it's playing itself out, and we have these conversations, Northstar, the executive leadership team, is this idea of like private equity. And no, we're not a private equity supported firm, but and I think we're pretty agnostic about all of that stuff anyways. But there is a material difference between a private equity supported firm and a, a company that is, doesn't have a, a exit you know, plan, right? So private equity, typically, they buy an asset, they have it three to five years, and they flip it like flipping a house. That's right. the way it works. Uh, whereas we have a long-term sponsor. How does that, Adam, change the way, or does it change the way that the companies that are not sponsored by private equity behave strategically? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the challenge, and, you know, Jeremy, you kind of made this point, which is sometimes private equity makes bets that don't pay off. Right. And if I was running a private equity firm right now, I would not be spending a lot of time in anesthesia because when you can consolidate to move price, it's a great model because I can go in, I can say, hey, I'm going to buy this asset. I'm going to raise price because my costs are going to be the same. So now I've just increased profit and then I can get out and sell it to somebody else. And right. I've made a bunch of money. And, you know, it's private equity and a lot is a lot like flipping houses. It's like you buy a house, you borrow a bunch of money. Yep. Um, to buy the house Whatever and then else. you you know you get a 20% return but you know I only put in 20% on the house so I doubled my money right um, so that's a great model until it doesn't work anymore right and in anesthesia it doesn't work anymore and I think the hard thing is if you really are investing in practice management good practice management you're making leadership investments you're investing in srna programs that's a really long time horizon absolutely like if i'm going to spend time trying to figure out how to place students that payoff is 3 or 4 years later. So if I'm trying to flip this company in three years, I'm like, why would I spend any time on that? that? Um, It's leadership. It's like, I need to develop really good clinical leaders. Yeah. You know, as you all know that those people don't grow on trees. So you got to actually invest in it. And again, that takes time. That takes a long time to pay off. And it's not great from a private equity model perspective. So I think uh, it is a, I think it is going to be, you'll probably see a lot less private equity money in the anesthesia space over the next couple of years as a result because they've got to figure out how to make money here yep. and uh, the time horizon doesn't work for them. Well, that interest rates have gone up so dramatically. I mean, you know, private equity is always using leverage and borrowing money either from, you know, individuals, other folks, or the banks. And, you know, at a time when rates have gone up as much as they have, most dramatic rise in rates we've ever seen in the history of the United States. Um, makes private equity a little less lucrative um, and they're, they're being any deals coming across the table, I'm sure, are being scrutinized to the max right now. So you also mentioned, you know, the Surprise Billing Act, you know, several times. So let's talk about that a little bit and maybe give a little background for our listeners who might not know exactly what that is and, you know, how how is that impacting? You mentioned it was, but how is that impacting anesthesia? Yeah, so um, the best way to think about it is uh, originally the whole point of the No Surprises Act is, hey, there are certain areas where 
the whole in-network, out-of-network thing is on the patient, right? So I have to pay more money if I'm going to go to an out-of-network provider than an in-network provider. And I'm making that active choice. So if I'm going to go to, you know, Dr. Moore, my orthopedic surgeon, he's out of network. And I'm going to pay, I'm, I'm actively saying, look, Randy's fantastic. And so I'm going to go to him, even though he's going to be more expensive for me. Obviously, that's probably not true with Randy. So he's, <laughs> he's, the, he's the cheap in-network provider, so I'm going to go to him. Yeah, yeah. And he does a surgery at a hospital that has an out-of-network anesthesia provider. I don't have a choice on who my anesthesia mm-hmm. provider is. Right. So the fact that I'm paying more for my anesthesia at hospital A versus hospital B really isn't fair to me as a patient. So the whole point of the No Surprises Act is, hey, let's see if we can fix that problem. I think the issue is how they fix that has not played out. And basically what they did is they put all the power in the hands of the payer. Because previously, if I was, again, on the orthopedic surgery perspective, if I'm an orthopedic surgeon and my costs go up 20%, I go with my other group partners to United and I say, hey, United, I need, my costs went up 20%, I need 20% more. And United says, I can't do that. That's terrible. You know, I'm going to have to go to my my employers and do that. You say, okay, well, then I'm going to go to out of network and I'm going to charge you 40% more. You decide. And United says, whoa, 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 you know, (laughs) hey, let's have a conversation. Sure. And you negotiate a price increase. Right. Right now in anesthesia, because of the No Surprises Act, hey, our costs have gone up 30%. We go to United. We say our costs have gone up 30%. We need more. And United says, no, I can't do that. And we say, okay, pretty please. (laughs) (laughs) Because I can't go out of network. Um, And they say, you know what, Adam, I'm glad we had this conversation because anesthesia is really expensive. And um, I'm actually going to change our contract. So I'd like you to take a 20% reduction and anesthesia prices. Because if you don't, I'm going to kick you out of network mm. and I'm going to bring you back in and I'm going to pay you my QPA, which is 40% lower than what I'm paying you now. And so I have to say, oh, please, United, only give me a 20% price, price cut. And you're seeing this happening, you know, North Carolina um, uh, groups across the state got a letter from Blue Cross and Blue Shield in North Carolina that basically said, hey, if you don't voluntarily take a 20% price cut, we're going to reduce your contracts by 40%. These are in-network providers. So what's happened with the No Surprises Act is all the power is now in the payer's hands. The only recourse is to go through the IDR process, which is the independent dispute resolution process, which theoretically you say, hey, United used to pay us $100 a unit. They're paying us 50 bucks a unit now. Um, that's not fair because we can't afford to provide anesthesia care at 50% less. And an independent arbiter is supposed to say, okay, I can, should they get $100 or should they get $50? And the, their job is to award it uh, appropriately. And when you look nationally, the anesthesia groups have been winning around 75 80% of these IDRs. So um, that is the right thing. The problem is it costs so much money to go through the IDR process. Um, and right now, um, CMS had changed. It used to be $50 per sort of arbitration, it's now $350 per arbitration. Mm-hmm. So if you think about a typical case, if I was getting paid, you know, on say 10 units, or let's say eight unit case, it's $800 that I used to get paid. If it's $50, I'm getting paid 400. Well, if I have to pay $350 in fees right. before I win or lose, right. I mean, at best I'm making 50 bucks more. Like it's just not worth it. And because of the way that they've set up anesthesia, you really can only arbitrate one case at a time. So um, that's been the real problem is that the 
basically the government has sort of said, I don't want to deal with this anymore, so we're going to raise prices so high that anesthesia really can't afford to run these things through the IDR process. Wow. So let me guess, the, uh, the health insurance industry um, lobbied for this, and they supported this bill for sure. Uh, because they put the power all back in their hands. Yes, and they're you know, and again, I think we've you know, and I think it's something that we probably, as a profession, didn't do a great job at. I think a lot of the, and that was part of the. I don't know if you remember at the time, but the lobbying efforts were led by a lot of the private equity-owned uh, companies, and that sort of backfired. Yeah, and then you know, I think the ASA has largely said we're going to win on rulemaking, and as you know, um, there are other issues that the ANA is dealing with at the same time around rulemaking. Yeah. Um, when you rely on rulemaking, you're sort of crossing your fingers that the government entities are not going to be influenced by you know payer groups and other people to like write those rules. And as a result, it's not so much that the No Surprises Act is bad; it's the rulemaking around it has made things sort of tilted the scales in favor of the payers. Yeah, sure. And I've heard you talk about that before as well. Um, you, know, you might get something passed, but the real work comes in rulemaking, rulemaking. and that's where the yeah. ASA has been taking us out to lunch. As, a, as an organization. So we've talked about several issues, but Randy, how is all of this truly impacting hospitals and their relationships with the anesthesia companies and anesthesia clinicians? Well, I think part of it is <clears throat> what we've already talked about is that you know, these are difficult conversations, even with the best relationships. So if you have a partnership with a hospital, or even a longstanding uh, partnership with an executive who's been in seat for a while, there's a high level of trust showing up and saying we need to, you know, our subsidy was $3.5 million in 2019, and unfortunately you know, it needs to be $7 million because of the increase in provider costs. That's a difficult conversation to have. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and they're never, like, fun. <laughs> you know? So uh, those conversations are happening with 80% of clients in, in like, a 12-month period, right? So what happens with that is uh, for companies who aren't particularly sophisticated in having those conversations or aren't, uh, don't have deep relationships with the hospital health system, what happens is, understandably, the CEO starts to think about option B and option C. Uh, so you're seeing that churn that we referenced earlier where there's been a lot of, hey, there was a very transactional relationship between the anesthesia uh, firm, uh, the third-party vendor, and the hospital, and now that they're asking for a significant increase in subsidy, it becomes very easy to do uh, to explore other options, including hiring Northstar or insourcing. So that's playing itself out, and that will continue to do that uh, for a while. Uh, that presents um, for companies that are really good at navigating conversations and really good at uh, winning new contracts. That gives that provides a tons of opportunity. So if you look at the North Star growth trajectory. I've only been in the company for two years now, but wow, you know, and that doesn't include the business that we said, hey, it's just not the right fit, right? right? And so, right. and increasingly we are saying, hey, it's just not the right fit. And so we, we really do value, we don't want to have a transactional relationship with our clients. And we don't want to have a transactional relationship with our clinicians. Right. We want partnership because we have a long-term orientation. We want to create, create great culture. We want to deliver a great service. And believe it or not, that flywheel actually works. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. so when we do that, people hear about it, and other hospitals call us, and we, we replicate that process. And so that's how it's playing out kind of at the macro level. You know, as a clinician, uh, Adam said it in the onset of our conversation, is like it's outstanding to be a CRNA mm -hmm. and anesthesiologist right now, right. you know, relative to opportunity and um, compensation. 
Now, it's also pretty hard if you look to your left and you look to your right and you see that, like, geez, we're, we're 20% short-staffed at this facility. Right. That means CRNAs and docs, even though they're making a lot more money, are often working a lot more. Uh, and that's hard. And, and so, and, and burnout is a real risk. So I think, you know, as we look at, you know, and maybe we should unpack this just a little bit, as we look at how supply-demand will equilibrate over time, because it's a cycle. It always does. There's no reason to think it won't ever. Uh, so, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, there'll be a calibration of like, yes, compensation growth will at, at some point in time, not necessarily de decline and maybe not even plateau, but it will be less frothy. Right? Yeah. yeah. And um, hopefully work-life balance for some of the folks who are working harder uh, will start to calibrate as well. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So what is North Star exactly doing about your culture? I keep hearing you say this word. So obviously it's very important to you and your group, and I absolutely agree it's very important. So specifically, what are you doing to enhance your culture for people who are working their asses off? Now, they're making a lot of money. I'm willing to work hard because I'm making a lot of money uh, and stockpiling for the future, but there's got to be that balance somewhere. What are you guys doing? Yeah, so I think that I think it starts with local leadership. Um, the reality is, I can say whatever I want, but yeah. at the end of the day, an individual CRNA is not going to care what Adam Spiegel does uh, day in and day out. It's really going to come down to our local chiefs and our local medical directors. Um, and one is, how do we make sure that they understand enough about the economics so that they can be good facilitators with the facility? Um, the other thing is, how do we make sure that they're working really well together? And I think where, when, I mean, I go around the country and I meet with a lot of our different practices. I could walk into a practice now and it doesn't really matter how good, bad, or indifferent the hospital administration is. If the CRNAs and the physicians are in the same lounge, uh, if they are together, if they are supporting each other, people are going to be happy. Um, when they're in separate rooms, when you mm, sort of see that point. I've got my physician problems and I've got my CRNA problems mm. and never the two shall meet, those are bad cultures and those are not working well. And I mm. think where we are really pushing is, hey, how do we create sort of a one team mentality? Um, but that starts at the local level. So I think that's one big piece. I think the other thing is just that days of everybody has the same shifts, everybody has the same call coverage. That's not what people want anymore. And right. we've got to come up with much more creative ways of doing things. You may have some people want the 24s. Uh, you may you know, find that, hey, we've got to have both you know, 8s and 12s and 24s. And we've got to be flexible that people are going to want to flex up. You know, they might graduate and they want to make a lot of money to pay off loans. Right. And then you know, they may be focusing on family and want to step back. And then they might ramp up into other, you know, they want to do leadership. They want to focus on quality. How do we as an organization allow somebody to sort of move in and move out um, and uh, be able to have that flexibility in their lives as well? Because I think, you know, when we think really long term, it's we want people to be able to create a and see 
they can create a career at a facility at North Star. And we're trying to figure out ways that we can be more flexible about that. Yeah, and I think that's a key, especially with the younger generation coming out right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're more concerned about quality of life. Um, they're very open and vocal about telling you about what they want. And, uh, you know, every hospital, every organization out there is going to have to learn how to deal with that. And as you say, I think flexing and being able to come in and go out, um, you know, it's a reason right now we hear a lot of people leaving the hospital to go 1099. One, they're making a lot of money. Um, two, they've got more flexibility and, and life choices out there right now that, you know, they'd like to pursue. So, you know, I agree wholeheartedly with, with both of those. So. Well, before we go further, you keep talking about growing leaders locally. And I have a sense that's probably part of your job, Randy. Um, and that's something that you had put forth within the AANA. So give us some specifics on what you do, what resources you put to that. Because what if I'm listening to this and I think, hey, I want to go to work in a North Star anesthesia because I have this opportunity. So what, what, are, what do you do to grow those leaders? So there's a, you know, I think there's a, and it's understandable, uh, that in a world where know the there's there's a lot of disruption in the workforce and folks are working hard and working long hours there's this conversation around what we need to we need to kind of lower our expectations and standards for leaders and I think our hypothesis is actually the opposite of that in a world where things are hard leadership becomes even more important so it is being really intentional about identifying leaders uh, who have uh, the values and the philosophy that align with our values and philosophy, right? Which are very culture oriented. And then you put those individuals in positions uh, to be successful, and you give them support. There's also accountability, right? So if a, if a leader is not meeting expectations, uh, the the easy thing to do, which is the wrong thing, is to kind of look the other way and say, "Hey, it's a, it's a warm body." There's no one else there that wants to do it. And then that is a very myopic, short-term kind of orientation that creates significant pain and suffering at that yeah. site, right? So, <laughs> uh, so where we are, I think, probably on the cutting edge, at least in our business sector, is we have every year we sit down, and, and this is a very rigorous process where we have a conversation about every single clinical leader and operations leader in the company. We do a talent review, and we put these individuals on a nine-box assessment. And in high performers, high, high potentials, we put them in positions of leadership to, uh, to grow. Uh, we, will, we will flag them. We will promote them faster than other individuals. We will put them through leadership development. Uh, and we have a North Star Next, which is a leadership development cohort that we have. And quite frankly, we, we incentivize them uh, based on their performance and their growth within the company. And so I think that, you know, having, that all requires persistence and patience. <laughs> Yeah. So, because yeah. that's not that stuff does not pay off in a year. Yeah. Uh, it takes it, you know, it takes a couple of years for you to start to really see the results, and we're seeing that for sure. So, I would say having a laser focus on leadership, actually elevating expectations and accountability for leaders at all level, all levels, from the site level leadership to the regional to the senior level leadership team, has I think positioned us very well. Everything yeah. rises and falls on leadership, it's, to be sure. And whenever you've got a poorly performing company and they come in to assess you, what's the first thing they do? Fire the CEO. Yeah. And I, I was <laughs> Sorry, saying, Adam. No, no, I'm used to it. If you point to, like, in my leadership career, 
where I've made my biggest mistakes has been trying to execute a strategy with the wrong people yeah. in the wrong seats, right? Yeah. And you can try all you want, you can do all the coaching you want, but if someone doesn't have the will or the skill, you're just running up a, br a brick wall. So it starts yeah. with, do we have the right leaders in the right roles? Do they have the yeah. right, and, and if the answer is, yeah, they've got aptitude, they've got interest, well, let's make sure we develop them and let's, let's stretch them and put them in roles where they're gonna be able to learn, grow, make mistakes, learn from those mistakes, but in a very supportive environment. I, to me, that is obviously my, you know, that's my passion. Uh, and it's really fun to see that play out. And it's delivering results. We can, we can point to it today, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, Adam, I'll go back to you on this one. You know, how is all, all of this stuff we're talking about, how is it impacting practice models right now? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think what you're starting to see is as hospitals will push on price, you can play with different practice models. And I think we're seeing that across the board. And, you know, the way North Star approaches things, is we say, look, um, there's a physician-heavy model. This is what that's going to yield. There's a care team model. That's what that's going to yield. And there may be a QZ model. That's what's going to yield. And this is the cost and this is the revenue. And this is, you know, what. And you guys will tell you the pros and cons. But at the end of the day, the hospital is going to make a decision on which model they're going to work. And, you know, culturally, that's a big part of it, right? Which right. is there's, there's certain models that are going to work based on the surgeon composition. You know, we have one facility that um, two CEOs have gotten fired uh, trying to get to a care team model from an all-doc model um, at the hospital because you had a couple of really entrenched surgeons who, you know, said, forget it, it's not going to happen. Um, and a couple of anesthesiologists, honestly, we've had to have them retire, and now we're moving towards care team model. Um, so there are those situations, um, but I think by and large you're starting to see you know, a lot more openness to care teams. I think even in markets where they're very heavy physician-only practices, um, even those, when you talk to those practices, they like, we know this is not going to last much longer. Yeah. Um, so what that's really doing is driving up a lot of the uh, demand for CRNAs. I think the interesting thing, uh, and this goes the other, this cuts the other way, are two points. One is that I think you see what's happening with Cigna uh, with paying yeah. less for uh, non-medically directed cases, when you start to see that, it does change the equation. And yeah. it limits what you can do from a practice model because the cost of CRNAs keep going up. And in an honest moment, if you're, it is cheaper for us to have a physician sit a stool than it is for us to pay a locum CRNA. So in a lot of our models, we say, gosh, if we can recruit physicians to do this job, well, then we're going to have a heavier physician model because we can't get a full CRNA team and it's more expensive to run CRNAs than a CRNA heavy model than it would be a physician heavy model because in that market, it may be easier to recruit physicians. So the pay is getting to that point where you start to sort of see this little bit more of an equilibrium around, hey, for some of these models, it's actually cheaper to have the physicians sit the stool. So that's How easy is it to find that? I mean, uh, that's regionalized. Yes. In the, south, in the southeast, you can forget that, where and I'm you, from. There, and there are certain states where, you know, Texas is a good example, one where you cannot find a physician. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are other states where you actually, you know, it's just um, the, the CRNAs have gotten so, you know, the man's gotten up so much, and you have a lot of these ASCs, if they're running CRNA only, that actually there are some docs that you can find that are a little bit easier. Yeah, um, and, and you're comparing 
you know, a W-2 physician to yes. a 1099 CRNA. Right. Yeah. But, but yeah. you can also, I mean, part of the thing is it comes down to hours. Your salaried physician, that salaried physician may be working 50, 55 hours. If you're paying a right. CRNA, yes, you're paying them less, but that's at 40 hours. If they're working overtime, right. even some of the premium pay, you start to say, gosh, there's not that much of a cost difference anymore. Right. And I think you, you even said the last time we were on, I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, but... Um, you know, that a, a locum CRNA pay, when it got to a certain point, you mentioned this before, that, you know, we got to be careful with, with mm-hmm. pay because you can price yourself a little out of the market. But then in a, in a supply-demand problem like we have now, what happens in that scenario? I mean, if you can't find an anesthesiologist and you can't find a CRNA and you've got to pay more to get them, I mean, this just seems to be a big spiraling problem to me, you know, when you look at that. So I guess I'm leading into where do you foresee this supply-demand imbalance kind of getting closer? I mean, yes, we've got more schools out there now putting out more students, but, you know, you're two, three, four years away from many of that manifesting itself. Yeah, what I'd say is if you actually look in the markets, uh, we are finding that, you know, the first sign is that locum pay is stabilizing. And that basically tells you for whatever reason, the market's we've starting. reached that yes, point. We've kind yes, of, we kind of are at that point. And yeah. then what you're starting to see, and we've seen this, is that as we start hiring new grads, it's actually harder to be a locum CRNA because you actually start having to look a little bit more for work. The phone's not ringing like it used to. And you also get a little bit of, this is one of the things I'd say, which is both hard, you know, it's the, the good news is you can make a lot of money. The hard thing is, Culturally, you know, most people want to be part of a team and mm-hmm. they want that consistency, especially sort of newer grads. Yep. It sounds great to be a 1099, but, you know, there's some safety issues. Like if you're going from hospital to hospital, you don't know where things are. Right. You're working with new surgeons every day. You don't know who the anesthesiologist is who's, you know, maybe, you know, more giving you more oversight than you want or less. Um, and that can be a little scary. And I think you're finding that people are saying, gosh, you know, if I can make good money as a W-2, I might be willing do that when that starts happening then again it's sort of the cycle of there's less of that 1099 demand and it drives more 1099s into w2 so we haven't gone all the way to that point but we certainly are seeing a lot of stabilization on the uh, locum side which kind of portends that we are getting a little bit more towards randy's equilibrium than we probably were even 12 months ago yeah randy yeah i mean i don't want to bring any math to the conversation, but I, I would say that, um, which is not my MO. Uh, so if we, like, just a, from a number perspective, on the supply side. So in 2022, there were 2,711 CRNAs who entered the workforce. Yep. That same year, 3,300 matriculated into nursing anesthesia programs. So if you extrapolate that out, in 2025, we're going to see 3,300, 3,200 3, CRNA right. enter the workforce. Um, and so... That's a material increase, and now that's just in 2025. So that growth, that program growth, because there's 16 nursing anesthesia programs in capability review right now, and that doesn't include the existing nursing anesthesia programs where about 100% of them are either expanding their class size or planning to expand their class size. You're going to see, if 2025 is 3,300 graduates, you're going to see double-digit growth year over year. So supply is, is really heating up. You're going to see... Uh, and I know some CRNAs are probably listening to this and saying, oh, sh- oh crap. Here we yeah. go again. <laughs> yeah. But they always 2008, 2008, that. yes. Uh, so um, now what we are working on, and, and in an honest moment, don't really have the data. So this is, is like 
how many, because we know that the, it is an aging workforce. Right. How many people are going to be leaving? Why did you look at me? No, I did not look that. at you. <laughs> so all of that is to say is workforce predictions are inherently flawed. Right. They're very right. difficult. We paid, I paid a half a million dollars for one when I was at the AANA that was useless the moment it was published. Yeah. Uh, so I would say that we are, you know, cautiously optimistic that there's going to be, you know, we're going to continue to see a path towards more equilibration in markets. Yeah. Where I would push <coughs> folks who are in the business of employing CRNAs and anesthesiologists, what we see is in a world where there's a supply-demand imbalance and cost goes up, but that can't be your only lever that you pull. And there's a lot of folks who are in our industry who are just pulling the compensation lever. Right. And right. and in mm-hmm. some ways, in many ways, they're throwing they're throwing money at culture problems. We 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 have a multi front approach, which is we do believe CRNAs and anesthesiologists should be com- uh, compensated competitively yeah. uh, and appropriately. But we also think we also want them to come to work and enjoy their work. And I think that's kind of the yeah, thing that I think is uh, you know critically important and it's difficult to have that focus when you are because it's hard out there if you're in our business it's hard you are you're you know you're in a knife fight you know every day trying to staff facilities and negotiate with clients and all of that thinking both in the short term and the long term is really hard yeah yeah well you know i mean i I look at this and say you know i I think crnas are still in a great position Mm -hmm. like anesthesiologists are in a great position i mean you know we got a lot of things that are are pointing towards, you know, more surgical procedures. I mean, we've got an aging population. You typically need a little more maintenance as you get older, so you've got that. Um, you do have a lot of CRNAs. I think the average age is 51 right now that are going to be retiring in the next 10 to 15 years. So you're going to have to replace them. So I think there's still a lot of opportunity out there um, for CRNAs, not only W-2, but 1099 positions as well. And I kind of agree with, with what you said, Randy. You know, I, I don't see those salaries going down. It's kind of like inflation. You know, when, once you get inflation into the economy, it doesn't go away. You know, you can't tell the guy that you were paying $15 an hour last week that inflation went down, you're going to pay him 12 You can't do that, you know. So once it's in, it's in. And I, and I think that's what we'll see with, with CRNA pay and anesthesiologist pay is it'll level off. Um, you know, maybe get a little dip at some point, but still ultimately kind of trending you know on a more relevant trend line than straight up like it has you know the past few years so well i've uh, been in the business 31 years i've never seen it go down yeah 31 years i've seen a lot of cycles supply and demand cycles in 31 years but i haven't seen pay go down i mean listen what i started out as my beginning salary as a brand new CRNA, these kids wouldn't even roll out of bed for it. They wouldn't even turn over and and turn off their alarm clock for what I got paid. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely a different world these days. But as we conclude here, guys, anything you you want to get across to our listeners, or anything else you'd like to add? I think you know it, it sounds. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of reflecting on our conversation, and I hope it doesn't sound too doom and gloom. <laughs> I, I think the takeaway for us is. Um, it is absolutely a great time to be going into anesthesia. I've got three kids. Uh, if they ever listen to me on any of the advice I give them, I would say, please give serious consideration to being a CRNA or anesthesiologist. I, can require, I could recommend that without hesitation. Right. And I don't think that's going to change. Right. So despite all of these kind of like business things that we've been talking about, uh, that's going to play itself out. The disruption is going to play itself out. And uh, at the end of the day, if you're a CRNA or an anesthesiologist and you listen to this conversation, you should feel really good about yeah. where things are going. 
you know, if you are an employer of Saturdays and anesthesiologists, you should feel pretty bad right now. <laughs> Get your knife hard. out. I, this is like, you know, we talk about this stuff, and I'm going to shut up in a second. It's like, I, I, like we are, like, we're all about competition. Like, yeah. competition, because competition improves things, right? Right. So, right. so we, we, we invite the competition. We, I think and it only benefits clinicians, and, and we, uh, as a clinician, I want clinicians to, to feel like they are valued and they're respected and they earn a good salary and, and all of that. And so all of this competition we've been talking about, I think, is actually a good thing, even though it's painful for us navigating right. through this. But I have a pretty high degree of confidence that under Adam's leadership and the team that we have that we'll be successful. So I think those are the things that, you know, I think about, like, like you know, it's really a good time to be in the profession. And, and that, I don't think, is going to change for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the only thing I'd add, um, is it is great. Um, so one, um, don't underestimate your value, you know, as a CRNA, uh, you are an incredibly valued resource. And I think sometimes, uh, people don't recognize that, Hey, this is, you know, my, what my worth is. So you should recognize that at the same time, there's a reason if you, if there is a place that's paying significantly higher than the rest of the market, there's probably a reason behind that. Mm -hmm. And You know, sometimes it's hard to step back and say, you know, I'm actually, I think most people would say, would I be willing to make 5% less money to be happy in my environment um, versus being just at the top? And uh, I think spending a little bit of time is, is this a team that I'm excited about? Is this a place I really want to work? Can I see myself being happy here for the next three to five years? People should be asking that question much faster than, you know, what exactly is the hourly rate? Right. And I think that's the other pin thing that I think people are missing right now. No, and I think that's great. And it's good to end on that because, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier. You know, this younger generation um, are choosing happy and quality life and life balance over money. And, you know, I'll, I'll kind of end on this. But, you know, some of the most miserable people in the world have the most money. So it's not always about money. And you heard that come from me, Sharon. I know. <laughs> I believe can't that? believe it. So, but this has been great, guys. We could keep you, or I could keep you all day. Sure. I mean, Sharon's just sitting here looking at us all with glazed over eyes. But no, well, um, well, well, they hit culture. <laughs> you know, I'm all about culture. So. Yeah, yeah. But but anyway, but thank you for your time, Adam. Appreciate you being here, Randy. Always a pleasure to see you and Sharon. I think it's a wrap. Well, I do want to point out. No, it's not a wrap. No, no. not quite. Okay. This this episode will be the last episode. So you're listening to it on December 28th. We tape that in Seattle. But we have taped these before, predictions for the p- future. So I went back and I looked. Uh-oh. Episode 77 <laughs> with Randy. Randy I remember that. We taped on predictions for the future. And episode 203, we taped looking forward at 2023, this year. Yeah. Um, so going to be interesting if you want to go back and listen to see how these guys did i, I did notice oh, randy said you know we're not getting any numbers or anything or and then he gave numbers i know so, right anyway. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to yeah. see if you want to go back and listen and see how they did absolutely i think it's a wrap i think so Attention all certified nurse anesthetists. Are you in need of a reliable and quality continuing education option? Well, look no further than crnaeducation.com. 
We are an NBCRNA recognized provider offering all four core CPC modules to meet your certification requirements. You can choose from more than 100 AANA prior approved Class A CE credits with 43 articles covering a wide range of anesthesia topics. Need pharmacology CE credits? Well, we've got you covered there as well with over 40 pharmacology CE credits available. All credits are completed online and are mobile friendly. Choose articles worth one, two, or three credits. There's no subscriptions, no hidden fees, just the CE credits you need when you need them. Owned by CRNAs since 2011, you can trust in our commitment to your education. And customer service is always a quick email or phone call or even text away. To sign up and find out more about our education options, visit crnaeducation.com, your partner in continuing education. That's crnaeducation.com. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.